From the Media Factory in the South End of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM WBTVLP Burlington, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro. Today on Write the Book, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, For a while now, I've been interested in speaking with writers about their journalistic pieces and op-ed pieces in the news. And on March 16th, Rachel Foster, co-founder and executive council co-chair of World Without Exploitation, wrote an opinion piece in Vermont Digger in the wake of Burlington's vote to decriminalize prostitution. Hers is a different take than that of many progressives on this issue, and one I found interesting. So I reached out to Rachel to speak about the issue. World Without Exploitation is a community of organizations and individuals that have joined together in the fight to end human trafficking and sexual exploitation. Rachel and I were joined by Mary Spetta, a researcher, educator, speaker, and advocate in the movement to end commercial sexual exploitation. A sex trade survivor herself, Mary serves as Chief Impact Officer for AMIRA, an organization offering help to survivors of sexual exploitation. Um, I'll just mention the obvious for parents of small children. Our conversation, uh, which is going to take place for the next hour, refers to mature material. We began by discussing the terminology. Sex work is has been sort of um, a normalized term, but it was originally created um, by those sort of promoting the sex trade. Um, and many survivors or those who have exited prostitution don't use the term okay. because it implies that it's sex and it's work. Um, and, and Mary and I were having a conversation about this, but um, I have yet to meet somebody who's been in the sex trade and has exited who prefers to that term um, as the, a term that they're comfortable with. Okay. Um, but it's a tough one because it's what's in sort of common usage now. Right. I generally refer to it as the commercial sex trade. Okay. Right. And if you're referring to those in the commercial sex trade, people who have been in prostitution or in the commercial sex trade, and if you're referring to an individual, Mm -hmm. um, Mary, what would you say rather than saying um, a sex worker? Yeah, we want to avoid the word prostitute because that's that's a hurtful term to a lot of so prostituted person or person trading sex person being sold for sex the sentiment behind it is we try to acknowledge the human dignity of the individual and not define them by the sex trade but have them be defined by their humanity and what's happening to them in the sex trade is a verb rather than a noun all right so um prostitution versus sex trafficking sex trafficking and prostitution are not the same but they're inextricably linked So if you think about it as the end point to where it all ends up, people are sex trafficked into the system of prostitution. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're under 18, you're by law sex trafficked, right? If you could demonstrate force, fraud, or coercion, it's sex trafficking. But the notion that those in the sex trade have... um, sort of agency and choice is a a fallacy. Um, They're not the same to be sex trafficked and to be in prostitution, but those who are bought and sold in the sex trade are really 
largely the same demographic of people. When you look at those who are most vulnerable and most marginalized based on sex, race, poverty, childhood, sexual abuse, which is pervasive uh, in terms of those who are bought and sold in the sex trade, uh, interaction with the criminal justice system, foster care, uh, those who are most vulnerable to sort of profiteers and predators, um, it's the same people who are in um, prostitution as are sex trafficked most often. Mm -hmm. um, and domestic sex trafficking is an enormous, enormous issue. So people often think it's that people who are sex trafficked are trafficked in from another country or another locality, or it's something that happens outside of the United States. But it is so pervasive here as a domestic issue um, that we're not conflating it, but what we're saying is that it's inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, good. Um, would you add, do you have anything to add to that, Mary? Or Yeah, I, I think I think that this question is so interesting of what's the difference between prostitution and sex trafficking. Um, uh, working with people coming out of the sex trade and, and also having been exploited myself, um, I, I, I struggle to actually define a difference between the two because we're talking about people's lives. And the commercial sex trade is a very, very complex um, enigma, basically, because we actually see a lot of people ending up in the commercial sex trade because of vulnerability, because of poverty, because of addiction diseases, because they need to pay for diapers for their kids, etc. And then while they're in the sex trade as a means of survival, the trauma sort of catches up with them and then a trafficker catches up with them as well. Mm -hmm. So we actually see people moving in and out of a trafficking situation within the commercial sex trade. And it's really, really hard to then say, okay, these people over here are being trafficked and these people over here are doing it by choice. Mm -hmm. Because so often, you know, when we talk about choice, for example, does poverty really give you a choice? You know, if you if you're about to be homeless and the only way that you can pay your rent is to turn a trick, is that really a choice? Mm -hmm. So looking at the commercial sex trade, we have to really honor the complexities of it. And all the research shows that, you know, at most, at absolute most, 15 percent of people trading sex are actually there by choice and have an economical opportunity to not be there. In reality, it's probably more like 10%. So 90% of the people in the sex trade are being exploited, are being trafficked, are there, and they don't want to be there, but they have no other means of survival. Mm -hmm. And the other piece of it is the sex buyer, the person who is paying for access um, to somebody's body who's in that room, um, in that, you know, on that track, in that hotel room, in that brothel, he's not distinguishing. He, it's either, um, he's unable to distinguish between somebody who's there, quote, voluntarily, and we could really talk about what that means as Mary's uh, started that discussion. Right. Or whether she's been trafficked in or she's there because of, a, you know, a slew of compounded traumas. He's not making that distinction. Uh, so the other piece is that in, it's a demand-driven industry. So there's, um, there's so many 
sex buyers who are willing to break the law at this point, if you open up the sex trade, then you really are increasing demand. Um, and then where is that sort of supply coming from? So sex trafficking is one way to meet the supply, uh, the demand need for paid sex mm -hmm. or, and, and I say sex in quotes, right? But you, you know, there's only so many individuals who are in there by um, circumstances that would in any way resemble a choice to be there. Yeah. So where do those bodies come from? Okay. Um, um, great. I, um, I, want to, I want to talk about how each of you became involved in this issue, but I also want to sort of start to talk a little bit about um, Burlington, Vermont, and what's going on here, which is how I heard about your work, Rachel, uh, by having read something that you wrote about this. So I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the history regarding Burlington's um, situation right now. Uh, it started with charter language that they wanted to change. So can we talk a little bit about that and how you got involved in that? So Burlington, um, Burlington City Council sort of honed in on um, archaic language in the city charter that referred to houses of ill fame and uh, consorting with common prostitutes. So this was archaic and offensive language in the city charter. Um, that was a long forgotten section, but Perry Freeman, Councillor Freeman, pulls at this language as a way to open up the potential for full decriminalization. So by removing that language and not replacing it, which was a possibility to amend it with non-archaic, non-offensive language, Perry Freeman chose to make this an issue of decriminalizing not only those bought and sold in prostitution, which we agree with. So those who are selling uh, sex in the sex trade or bought and sold in prostitution, we fully agree and believe that they should be decriminalized or not face any sort of criminal penalties. But what this did was um, created this effort to decriminalize brothel keeping pimping and sex buying, which is part of a national effort. It's not just Burlington, uh, it's Oregon, it's Michigan, it was DC. So when I came to Burlington, the thing that I noticed on town hall day was the city was plastered with these green vote yes on number five signs. So they were well-funded, they were everywhere. So. Those who um, are propelling this forward have deep pockets, right? So they're well-organized, they're well-funded, and that was reflected in what the city looked like on that day, mm -hmm. right? So people who don't know about the issue or any have any depth of, in terms of the issue will see this all over the city of Burlington, and it has an impact. But the question is, who pays for that? Mm-hmm. So these are sort of thinly veiled um, efforts to decriminalize, sort of put forward as dealing with archaic language or a health and safety bill. It's often done under the cover of darkness without much publicity at all. 
uh, citizens, constituents are not aware of it. And it's sort of a bait and switch. So it was charter language that was not actually an issue mm-hmm. pulled out to blow open this um, decrim effort. And Selena Colburn on the state level has introduced a full decrim bill. And so I came to Burlington as part of World Without Exploitation because we work on the national level. We're the largest anti-trafficking coalition in the country with over 200 member groups. Uh, Many of them are survivor-led groups. And we've been called in to different localities to help educate and advocate um, for the equality model, which we could talk more about, but mostly to fight these incredibly well-funded efforts nationwide to legalize pimping, brothel keeping, and sex buying. Um, Where we agree is that those bought and sold should be decriminalized, but where we differ is what we believe is the harm of unleashing the demand forces on a locality. So I came to testify at the city council hearing several times. Mary also testified, other survivors testified and advocates. Um, And the city council ultimately voted to repeal this language without amendment. All right. Um, I wonder if we can just take one minute to talk about decriminalization as a term and what that what that literally would mean with and without the brothel aspect of it. So what would that mean, for example, for people who are buying um, sex? Um, what would that mean for people who are uh, in in the in the they're being prostituted? Um, and you addressed that, that, that you're fully in favor of people who are being prostituted, not being um, uh charged with any crime, but um, what about what about the, the pimps and the buyers? Mary, do you want to jump in here? Sure, yeah. So um, <clears throat> when we look at uh, what happens when we de- decriminalize demand, it follows the same laws of supply and demand in economics. So when we decriminalize something that has been criminalized for so long, um, all of a sudden it's made available. When it's made available, demand skyrockets. And when demand skyrockets, you need to have a supply to meet that demand. But the other thing that decriminalization does is it's an invitation for traffickers to come in and meet that demand because that's a, that's a money maker, right? Um, we, we know that this, the commercial sex trade, um, the reason why so many people are attracted to it to exploit individuals in it is because they make so much money. Mm. Um, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars off of just a few women at a time in a year. Um, and so when you have demand sp- spiking and then traffickers have this open invitation to come in and they're ex- then they have this, you know, availability to exploit and to make more money off of it. And it does two things. The first thing that it does is it increases the number of people trafficked Mm -hmm. and subsequently the violence that more people are experiencing. And when we're talking about the people that are being exploited, we're usually talking about the people at the very margins of society. The commercial sex trade is the ultimate destination for all inequity. 
for racism, sexism, um, for any sort of discrimination, particularly among the LGBTQ population, um, immigration, refugees, um, the, the ultimate vulnerability is then to be exploited in the commercial sex trade and traffickers go after those folks. Um, as well as others, but mostly those. And so we have a huge increase in trafficking. And then the second thing that it does is it plummets the price of the, the traded item, which in this case is sex, or as I often say, paid rape, because it's really not sex. And when you have a plummeted price, then those people who are being exploited, as well as the very, very few people who are in the sex trade by choice, have to be exposed to more violence in order to survive on the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. And when we decriminalize demand, we also then, and Rachel can speak to this, we also have very, very few avenues by which we can actually pursue litigation for trafficking, by which we can actually get warrants. We can actually go after folks. And, And then we have the problem of determining, well, what was it that you bought? Because a person in the sex trade, even now, can't go to law enforcement and say, I was raped. Because the ultimate response to that is, well, isn't that your job? Mm. So when someone is assaulted and experiences violence in the commercial sex trade at the hands of a buyer in a decriminalized system, we really, that, that really then is a buyer being able to do whatever he wants with impunity. Exactly. And as Mary touched upon, it's very hard in general to get warrants, right? So if this is a business like any other business, brothels, um, pimping, so a a pimp would be a business manager, uh, a third party facilitator, it makes it also possible for them to hang out as they are doing when there isn't any criminal penalties outside of runaway and homeless youth centers like we're seeing at Covenant House in New York. Uh, they feel a sense of impunity um, and a free pass to be able to do what they do, which is to lure in the most vulnerable, particularly youth, mm-hmm. uh, right? So you're increasing harm um, to those who are most vulnerable. Uh, Rachel Morin, who's a survivor of the sex trade in Dublin, said what was always so chilling to her as a 15-year-old who was being Um, prostituted in Dublin was that the caller to the brothel always asked who is your youngest girl and she was always the youngest girl but it is an industry that preys on youth it is if you think about Jeffrey Epstein he's a typical buyer right so it is somebody who is looking to be able to pay for compliance because you're not paying for consent, what you're paying for is compliance Mm -hmm. and silence and you're normalizing that. So in a culture that is post me too, where we're telling young men and older men that uh, affirmative consent is critical, reciprocity and mutuality and equality in sexual relationships needs to be the standard for, for those kinds of interactions. We're saying that if you are a privileged person and buyers are typically white males with disposable income, buying the bodies of black and brown girls, trans youth, immigrants, those who have been in the foster care and those who have a history of childhood sexual abuse, 
right? We're really saying that if you can afford to purchase the bodies of those bought and sold in prostitution, it's fine. But just make sure that when it's your girlfriend or somebody you work with at your law firm, you're not crossing those lines. Um, there's something so inherently regressive about this. Yeah. Um, whereas the progressive model of the equality model, which is the global standard. So Iceland, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Norway, Sweden, Israel, and France all follow the equality model. So sometimes it's called the Nordic model. Okay, the so that's model. The, the same thing. Okay or partial decriminalization. So there's a, false, there's a false binary going on that either you support the fully punitive system where everybody is criminalized or you support full decriminalization, but there actually is a progressive solution that is the global, predominantly uh, global solution, which is, let's just call it the equality model. So those, who are bought and sold in prostitution, those who are selling sex are decriminalized. They're not criminalized for their own exploitation. They're not criminalized for survival or any of that sort of side of the equation. Instead, they're offered exit strategies and exit services. And Mary could speak more about that. Mm -hmm. But those who are fueling the demand, those who are causing the harm, the pimps, the brothel owners, the sex buyers are not given a free pass. Okay, great. Um, yeah, Mary, did you have anything you would add to that? Yeah, when we, um, when we sort of look at um, what happens when we criminalize someone for being in prostitution, it's very, very significant. And actually, you know, the, the laws in the US that criminalize prostitution very much characterize prostitution as a moral failure. And it's only been in the past, you know, 40, 50 years that researchers have actually gone and talked to people in the commercial sex trade and said, hey, why are you here? Mm -hmm. And that's where all that, re that research that I referenced earlier has, has shown that the majority of people don't want to be in the commercial sex trade, but they have no other means of survival. And that's really significant because when we criminalize people who are being sold for sex, we forgot that they were victims first. We're criminalizing victims. And so what the equality model does is it decriminalizes the victim and it honors the fact that they have had a huge lack of resources and have been in isolation and have experienced a massive amount of trauma. And it opens up the possibilities for us to create comprehensive, what we call exit services. Because exiting from the commercial sex trade is very similar to exiting from domestic violence. We know that it takes an average uh, number of seven attempts for someone to exit a domestic violence situation or interpersonal violence. And in this X-trade, it's roughly seven to nine attempts. Exit wow. is not this one moment, but it's actually a journey. And that's because the person exiting is facing a massive number of obstacles. They're facing the trauma bond that they've had with their trafficker as a result of psychological coercion. They're facing their lack of resources to address their physical and mental needs as they leave. Many traffickers have children with the women that they traffic. 
Um, and they use those children as leverage to keep that person to comply. So if a woman can't leave with her child, that's, that's, you know, if she doesn't have resources to take care of her child, who would leave, you know, very few women are able to actually leave their child behind. And when they do the massive amount of trauma that that experiences, is just, it's mind boggling. And then you have housing. We know that housing is the number one barrier to people leaving because housing is expensive. It's the, it's the biggest line item on all of our budgets. And if you have been trafficked since you were a child, which the average age of entry into the commercial sex trade in the United States is between 14 and 17 years old and you're a child and you're coming out of it and you don't have a job history and you have a criminal record because you were criminalized because you were a victim mm-hmm. and your trafficker, your exploitation has left you in isolation and you have no connections and you have no community. How on earth are you supposed to find safe housing, you know, in an area where you're not going to be re-exploited, where you're, you know, how are you then going to find a job to pay for that housing, to create economic stability, and then subsequently afford mental health services to help you overcome all of the trauma that you experienced in the commercial sex trade, let alone the physical abuse that your body went through. So the beauty of the equality model is that it's a policy that incorporates these exit services, because we know that you can't just decriminalize someone and then you know give them an apartment and everything is hunky-dory. There's a lot of support that needs to be had. Um, you've mentioned both of you have mentioned resources, and I want to talk a little bit about the organizations that you are with. Um, there's World with, Without Exploitation, and I assume Amira is a member organization with. Yes, we are. Yeah. Okay. And then there's a quote on the World Without Exploitation website that says, we're united in the belief that we won't end exploitation until we confront its root causes. So I want to talk about those organizations, those resources, and also a little bit about what the root causes of the situation are, if that's not putting too much together in one thing. So World Without Exploitation, as I mentioned, uh, launched five years ago because what we were seeing was so many incredible small agencies, survivor-led agencies, uh, agencies doing services, service provision, as well as policy groups were operating in silos and doing just incredible work with very, very limited resources and staff. And so a small group of organizations came together five years ago to launch what would become this incredibly robust national coalition. So all of these groups could operate together. We could share information and strategies and support each other and also amplify the work going on around the country. And it's made an enormous difference because we're able to advocate together, educate each other. We um, have had about 30 webinars um, that are really powerful because it brings together advocates, educators from all over the country. And we work so closely with survivor leaders as subject matter experts. Um, As Mary talked about, you're not um, just about the experiences you went through or your exploitation, but really the expertise you have, the um, power you have in being able to talk about your lived experience and becoming a real expert on policy, on research. Um, So we really seek to amplify survivor voices and sort of follow that lead 
in terms of thinking about policy. Um, And we, so we operate on a lot of different fronts um, and we're a really small organization with a a much larger impact because of our collaborations across the country. Mm -hmm. So in terms um, of root causes, you're really talking about um, often childhood trauma, right? That ends up, you know, becoming compounded trauma over a lifetime. So I traveled around the country and I interviewed about 150 survivors of the sex trade and only a few, maybe three or four had not experienced childhood sexual abuse. So the vulnerability that comes from your body never really being your body, never being able to assert the boundaries of bodily autonomy, um, of having to learn disassociation, which is obviously a coping skill that is incredibly damaging both to your psyche and your body of having to do that to survive that level of exploitation. Um, And particularly when it's intrafamilial um, and that there is no safe space. Predators, pimps, whether they're Romeo pimps, somebody who sort of uh, poses as a boyfriend, builds trust, um, they're incredibly skilled at seeking out and exploiting vulnerability. Um, So it's not one root cause, but it's sort of a combination of extreme vulnerability. And then you don't all of a sudden turn 18. This notion that at 18, you're now an adult where you're exercising agency, choice, sort of a healthy uh, pathway forward. It's really a culmination of immense trauma um, and those root causes we talked about, which are gender, racial, economic inequality. Mm-hmm. And Amira, what is Amira? Um, Amira, we are an exit and aftercare organization supporting women specifically exiting the commercial sex trade. Um, we do this in a variety of ways, but mainly three ways. The first is through residential care. So we have three different housing programs that women can access based on their level of need and where they are in their exit journey. And those housing programs, it's it's not just placing them in a safe place to live, but we actually, we place them in a a safe and confidential location with a case manager, a clinician, with wraparound care, clinical support, a peer mentor, a lived experience expert who has come out of the commercial sex trade and done recovery and knows what that's like. Um, Really, we are about providing refuge for people who want to break free from exploitation and heal in community. Okay. That's our our sort of mission. And you're the chief impact officer. Yes, I am. What does that, what do you do? What does that mean? (laughs) I basically do this. I talk to people about the commercial sex trade and help people to understand the complexities of it and then invite people to participate in the work of helping folks who have been exploited, you know, partnering with organizations, not just like ours, but like others. Another huge part of our work is we educate our peer organizations, other, you know, housing insecure um, organizations and people dealing with food insecurity, people dealing with domestic violence, because people in the sex trade access all of these different things. And we want to share this knowledge Mm -hmm. with others. And that's a huge part of my job is helping people to understand the folks that they're serving better 
how they can serve them better, how we can do this work together. Um, because ultimately this is this is not something that you know my organization or World Without Exploitation or anyone can just face on our own. This is something that we have to face together as a community coming together. Okay, wonderful. And and you yourself are a survivor. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Do you talk about that in your work? I do occasionally, yeah. I I um with many survivors, you'll hear that um, for a lot of us, it's dangerous to give the details sure. of our stories. Sure. Um, and every every survivor story is different. Mm -hmm. But what we find are the commonalities is that psychological coercion piece, that manipulation piece, that is common with so, so many of us. Um, a huge part of our work at Amira is everything that we do is trauma-informed. And what that means is that we are not just looking to help her heal from her time in the commercial sex trade, but rather the compound trauma that Rachel talked about that she's experienced over her lifetime, because it was the compound trauma that put her in a place of vulnerability that then led her to being exploited or led her into the commercial sex trade. And if we don't address that, she's got no hope of functioning in independence and getting to a place of thriving. Right. So for all of us who have experienced the commercial sex trade, you know, that's the, that's the wisdom that comes with recovery is how do you address all of that? How do you get yourself to a place where your identity is no longer defined as an object to be bought and sold, but you actually get your human dignity back and you don't let it go. Mm -hmm. Benita Carter, who's sometimes described as the mama of the movement. She started an organization called Breaking Free in Minnesota. And she started it because there may have been drug program, drug rehab programs to deal with um, addiction, diseases, and issues. But what Mary's talking about is it's really that sort of wraparound care and trauma-informed care that you really need to unpack that why is somebody dependent on drugs? And very often in the sex trade, people are plied with drugs to make them more compliant or they're taking drugs to be able to numb out the experience that's happening to them. And it's really complex. Um, so I wanna to touch upon what happens in a decriminalized sex trade in terms of the collateral pieces, right? The collateral crimes um, and harms let's talk about the drug piece. So mm -hmm. very often sex buyers um, need cocaine to perform. Um, so we have partners, um, uh, one is Rebecca Charleston and one is Rebecca Bender. Uh, they were both bought and sold in the legal brothels of Nevada. And they'll talk about the collateral crime. So that there's the drug piece of it, um, that's sort of brought in. So if you look at Burlington, what would that look like? There's also the organized crime piece because as Mary said, this is highly, highly profitable. So even if you have, let's say a legal sex trade, you're gonna have a lot of illicit businesses circling around that or controlling that. Even in a legalized system, as Rebecca Bender says, that people are not operating necessarily on their own. They'll often have pimps to be able to operate in a, in a certain brothel or in a certain hotel, um, that there's still this piece of enforcement of um, organized crime 
of drugs. We know from our partners who work with children that the greatest risk to children are unrelated males in the household. The greatest risk of physical and sexual abuse are unrelated males. So if you have what's called a trap house, a brothel in a, an apartment, um, what is the exposure for children? Mm -hmm. um, are there drugs involved? There's so often violence on the part of the sex buyers. The actual sort of piece that isn't often talked about is what happens during those transactions, right? Where somebody is purchasing the body or access to the body of someone else. There's so often violence. So in speaking with um, women around the country, I mean, there's broken pelvises, there's head, you know, traumatic brain injuries, there's stabbing, there's choking, there's an immense amount of physical harm. And what we've also been talking about is the unseen harms, the trauma, the, the impact of repeated bodily invasion, of disassociation. So there's both seen and unseen harms that don't get talked about very often. And if something is a job like any other job, why is it necessary to have exit services and exit strategies, right? What job is there actually an exit plan? What job is it where you're exposed to the threat of violence every time someone enters the room? Mm -hmm. What does that do to your cortisol levels? What does that do to your state of being in constant high alert? Um, and Mary could talk about like sort of what jobs um, are harmful, right? Um, what, how is this different than other jobs? Yeah, absolutely. When we look at the rates of PTSD of people who have uh, experienced the commercial sex trade, um, they're equivalent to veterans of military combat. Um, when we look at the, the rates of um, individuals who have been raped in the commercial sex trade, um, they're often between 60 and 70%. Mm -hmm. Prostitute persons are the number one target for serial killers. Um, the average age of, the, you know, the average life expectancy of someone in the commercial sex trade is half that of their general demographic outside of the commercial sex trade. Um, so the, the violence that we see is, is so, so predominant. And we sort of touched on this earlier, but I, I, you know, when we talk about the commercial sex trade, I wish there was another word for it because it's not sex. We think about, you know, pretty woman yeah. <laughs> or, you know, uh, Hollywood that glamorizes this idea of prostitution. Right. And the West so Wing many had some of that. I remember. Yeah. Yes. And so the, the reference point that most of us have for sex and hopefully it's good you know, it's consensual, it's not violent, it's not harming you in any way, it's, you know, in the context of a, a trusting relationship, that's not what the commercial sex trade is. This is paid rape. You know, when I was being exploited, I, I faced bondage and electrocution. We've had women who have had their heads shaved. We have had women who, you know, they were told for years that they weren't allowed to look another person in the eye without threat of being beaten. Um, the, the, the compliance that traffickers pull from uh, people that they're exploiting, they're using mechanisms of torture for brainwashing, sleep deprivation, food deprivation, um, you know, threats against their children, threats against their pets. 
the commercial sex trade, there's, there's no way to make it safe mm-hmm. because it is entirely based on oppression. I was reading some of the stories on the World Without Exploitation website, stories that tell uh, about some of the people who are involved in the organization. And I noticed that often people um, are asked to give their home address for some sort of seemingly legitimate reason, like for a W-9 form, for a modeling contract, or for some sort of acting opportunity. And then that person's um, family address is out there, and that can be used against them, the same way that like losing your children would be um, absolutely an impossible thing to con- contemplate. Threats against your parents, threats against siblings. That sounds like it happens quite often. Absolutely. Um, so in traveling around the country and speaking, with so many people, I heard this over and over and over again. Somebody would attempt to exit, and aside from the physical abuse, all he has to do is recite where a little sister goes to daycare. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't, you know, or as you said, they have the social security number because of what may have started as a legitimate job, or they have enlisted their trust over a long period of time. So they know a lot of personal information because very often this is, if you're a 15 year old girl or a 16 year old girl um, and somebody is saying they love you and you're beautiful and you're smart and all the things that uh, let's just call him a Romeo pimp will do to build that trust before he ends up turning her out. Um, He's gotten a lot of information. And there's a lot of attachment because given the issues we've talked about um, of, of where people have come from very often, he knows exactly what to say to uh, at least initially make her feel like she's in a safe place with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that gets um, weaponized later. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, there's an enormous, as Mary said, amount of manipulation and coercion um, around really points of of vulnerability. And then the social isolation. So although you do not need to move locations to be trafficked, right? That's not a requirement. I mean, you could be trafficked, born and bred in Burlington, and there's so much sort of homegrown sex trafficking, commercial sexual uh, sex trade. Um, You're often destabilized. He's moved you around. He's isolated you from your family. Um, your friendship ties. Um, so there's, there's another piece that I think we should touch upon in terms of sex buyers. So there, there are things called buyer review boards, John boards. When you read those, which we all have, they are so vile um, and so abusive in terms of looking and rating and reviewing women um, or whomever it is who's being sort of sold uh, in the sex trade as if they're pizza or cars or just any other commodity, but with such a level of cruelty and dehumanization. And that piece, people are not necessarily seeing that this is just consenting adults this is a lonely man who needs that sort of companionship and comfort. That's not predominantly the person who's purchasing access to another human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just maybe we can talk about the stigma piece that doesn't shift. 
because something's been decriminalized, um, just like the safety piece doesn't really change. The idea that if we have a legal sex trade, there's no more stigma is another fallacy. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, for centuries now, prostitution has been around and it's always been a form of oppression. And there is always stigma and bias against the person being sold for sex, right? Because these, you know, we go and look at those those sex buyer um, sites and those chat boards that Rachel mentioned, and they're not speaking about these people like they're people. They're speaking about them like they're trash. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like, for example, when we look at the aftermath of what happens when the sex trade is, for example, legalized. Um, you know, in Rhode Island, the commercial sex trade was legalized up until I believe it was 2008 or 2009. And to this day, traffickers in New England take um, many people that they are exploiting to the still functioning brothels in Rhode Island that have gone underground because it has become a place of sex tourism. And it still is, even though it is now criminalized. And those places, traffickers know, are some of the most violent places. They intentionally bring people there to turn them out first and as, as basically like a breeding down, ground to like break their spirit and to get them used to, you know, when, when someone says you do this, you do it. You don't ask questions because it hurts more when you ask questions. We've served um, a few, uh, a, a bit more than 400 women at Amira in our 11 years of service. And in our residential program, actually 61% of the women that we have served were trafficked or exploited at some point in Vermont. Yeah. And those, what really concerns me is that those women also faced the most physical abuse of anyone else, of any other group of people that we have served. But within New England, though, when you're trafficked in one place, you're actually trafficked usually in multiple places because New England is so contained, you know, we're like not even the size of Texas. So you're moving to also, you know, moving in and out in all sorts of places. And the women who have been trafficked in Vermont, they'll tell you it's extremely violent. And often because the trafficking that's around Burlington and the trafficking that's around Montpelier is gang related. So when we, you know, going back to what Rachel was saying about the stigma, there's the, abs- there's, the, there's the fact that you're treated like trash when you're in the commercial sex trade. But then when you leave the commercial sex trade, there's an understanding that you're still trash. Well, and certainly that's how the women are, um, or the persons who are sold uh, have always been treated by the media, you know, in, in, I mean, we talked about the movies that sort of glamorize that, that profession, but there's also the I think probably more predominant um, uh, treatment of people being sold for sex as just being um, stupid, um, being um, in the way, being a pain, being denigrated by the police or by... Yeah, being dirty, being morally inferior. I mean, we'll glamorize it, we'll watch Pretty Woman and we'll laugh along with Julia Roberts, but who's going to allow someone who was formerly in prostitution to babysit their child? Right. Right. And then there's you know huge resume gaps because ultimately, you know, what are you building in terms of you know the skills if you're thinking about it as work, right? 
what are sort of the skill sets and expertise and sort of future, you know, work opportunities, Mm -hmm. right? So that people come out of prostitution, out of the commercial sex trade, not with financial resources, because speak with anybody who's been in the commercial sex trade, they're not building up savings, money, stability, right? It really is surviving week to week. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of a myth that you're going to somehow go on certain sites and you're going to put out your own shingle and you're going to be able to make money to, to support yourself. That isn't really what ends up happening. There are profiteers and it's the third parties who are facilitating this, the, the brothel keepers. Um, that's who's actually making millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? So um, the other piece in terms of let's go back to the stigma piece. I have two sons and a daughter. I mean, that is, are you going to sort of encourage your children to work at the local brothel, either as somebody who's like running the desk or somebody who is um, selling sex, for lack of a better word, in the brothel? Um, Are we going to have it as um, a, a requirement of public assistance that you exhaust that as a work opportunity before you get public assistance? Are we going to have school fairs where, you know, business, because if it's a business like any other business, if it's a job like any other job, being a pimp is a business manager. So what do we have at high school fairs? when we're looking at job opportunities? Is this something that gets talked about at the dinner table that your grandfather checked out the local brothel and you too, grandson, should check out the local brothel? The stigma carries because it's, you know, there's a piece of it that's so inherently dehumanizing, um, inherently secretive, inherently sort of violating trust in a family or uh, a marriage. Um, And it isn't what, most people have an appetite for in terms of having brothels next door to their homes um, or that their family members are engaging in. So essentially it's saying that there's a sector of our population for whom it's okay. Right. Right. But most of us are not saying this is what our aspiration is for our own children. And until we are at a point where we could say that, then we're basically speaking for other people in terms of what's okay for them, but isn't okay for us. And there's something inherently wrong about that. It's so abundantly anti-progressive. It's so abundantly not looking at the nexus between gender, race, economic inequalities. I come from a progressive family background. And to me, I never understood how progressive people could hold up the sex trade as anything but gender-based violence, highly exploitative, um, where the players and bad actors who you typically don't want to empower are the ones who are being empowered. Right. And it is interesting. I mean, you have organizations like the ACLU and Human Rights Watch that seem to be supporting decriminalization. Um, So it's really, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because I think in a progressive place, and for the most part, I think of Burlington as a progressive place, you hear a lot about decriminalization as being the primary um, sentiment that this is a good thing. So when I read your op-ed, I was very interested to hear about the other side of that. Um, And I do, it's a little bit of a seismic shift here, but I do want to talk a little bit about that op-ed because I because the show is a writing show. And, um, and the written word is 
a lot of times what helps people understand the world that they live in. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that aspect of your jobs, um, if you are writing for lots of different local newspapers around the country about this issue when you are going to places like Burlington? Absolutely. So all of our member organizations um, do writing um, or speaking or research. Mary's a researcher. Um, so some people, it comes through maybe academic writing. Um, others, it's um, writing opinion pieces, um, testimony. We do a lot of testimony. So writing is really important in terms of testifying at uh, city council hearings, um, legislative hearings. But the way we could speak directly to people so the voters in Vermont, for instance, is by writing an opinion piece. Right. Um, many, many survivors of commercial sexual exploitation do write pieces. Whether they get published or not is another issue because so many of the publications that are, let's quote, say progressive publications will not publish this point of view. Mm -hmm. So how can we really educate people about these issues if mainstream publications won't publish this point of view? what I try to point people to, who are you reading? Like who is doing the writing? Because we, we know that, you know, for the sex trade, you know, 10% of people trading sex are have an economic option to not do it. It's that other 90% that are being exploited or being trafficked. And so when we look at who's, who's doing the writing, who's showing the testimonies, the fact is that you're not gonna hear from 90% of people in the commercial sex trade you're not going to hear from the majority because they don't have the option to have the mic passed to them. So for those of us who, who've lived through the commercial sex trade and so grateful to have this conversation and, and honored to be involved because there's, you know, we know that a fraction of people who are trafficked actually make it out alive. So, you know, I can't show up to, you know, a, 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 you know, a city council meeting with the half a million people in the United States being trafficked versus the other sides, you know, 10,000 people in the commercial sex trade by choice. I can't do that. You know, they advocate for it because they think that they're hearing the majority, but they're not. Um, and so we try to get the written word out as much as we can to speak directly to people and to be able to have some space to talk about the nuances uh, of these issues, because very often, the uh, folks in support of full decriminalization simplify it and sort of make accusations of like that we conflate sex trafficking and prostitution, which we don't actually do, but it's purposeful to sort of create some confusion around all of this. Okay. So that, I, I mean, it's funny because that's something I said early in the interview, but the fact is I think there's a lot of misinformation as well. And I think there's just a lot of ignorance. I mean, people... Um, follow their political uh, ideals in groups, right? And aren't necessarily as well-educated as they think they are about everything. The other piece is that where we differ, so where we have common ground with the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, and even John Oliver. Right, yeah, I was going to ask which, about that. Which 24 survivors um, spoke out against John Oliver uh, in the video, spoke directly to him. But where we have commonality is, as we said, in not criminalizing those sold uh, in the commercial sex trade. Where we differ is 
the notion of giving a free pass to profiteers and exploiters, the pimps, the brothel keepers, and the sex buyers. We do not believe that you create a just society um, where there's equality and there's mutual respect um, and there's um, sort of a, a healthy approach to sex by giving the demand side a free pass. Um, and also people on um, all sides say they abhor sex trafficking, right? That sex trafficking is this horrible, horrible thing, right? And we know it is. But sex trafficking and prostitution, as we talked about, are linked, right? So in order to meet the demand, as Mary talked about, you need to supply the bodies of people to meet that demand. And there is the nexus, right, mm -hmm. with sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. If you think about it as trains coming into one central hub, people are being sex trafficked <clears throat> into prostitution. There's a very small percentage of people who are there because they have other choices out of their own agency and volition, um, whether it's a graduate student who is maybe um, escorting or sugaring on the side. And then if you crack it open, there's often much more complexity there too. Right. Right. And there's often trauma that goes along with that, even if it feels volitional going into it. Right. You don't actually control what happens in the room and you don't control what happens in terms of your psychological response to those sex acts that happen to your body. Um, um, we're just about out of time, but I did, um, I wanted to just ask if you have advice. Um, I think, I think maybe mostly I would ask what would your advice be for people who find themselves without a lot of choices and, and considering where to go next and what to do next. Um, people who are considering uh, uh, this uh, or, or being propositioned by someone questionable, um, what, what is your advice for people? That's a very interesting question. Um, when I think about people who are in that position, they're often not in a, in a headspace or even in an economic space to be able to ask the question, mm -hmm. you know, what is your advice? But if, you know, if, you know, I think about the women that I work with and I even think about myself back then, I would, I would probably sit down and just have a conversation and say, Hey, I know that this sounds glamorizing and the money sounds like it's a lot. And you've got someone making you a lot of promises that sound very real because this is the first person in your life who's ever paid attention to you and loved you. But know the risk. Know that what you're getting into is nine out of 10 times going to leave you with half a soul when you get out of it. And you are at a very, very high risk for not making it out. There's resources. There's help. You know, there's folks like us at Amira, we've got a community resource center. People can just walk in and get services. Um, there's, there's, you know, domestic violence places. There's, um, there's, you know, places that'll help you get a job. There's so many people like us and that, you know, we and like World We can connect people to, to prevent them from having to go through that pain. I've lived that pain. I've met, I've met so many women and men and boys who have lived through that pain. And it is the last thing that I would wish on my worst enemy. 
Thank you. Um, all right, I want to mention again, I've been speaking with Rachel Foster from World Without Exploitation and also from the Brooklyn Cat Cafe. We didn't get to that, but that sounds like a wonderful cause too. And Mary Spetta, who's with Amira. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Ella. Thank you. From the Media Factory in the south end of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM WBTVLP Burlington, streaming online at 993WBTV.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. That was an interview with Rachel Foster and Mary Spetta. You can learn more about their organizations by visiting worldwithoutexploitation.org and amirainc.org. That's A M I R A H. Inc.org. I'll add the links to the podcast site as well. You may have heard me refer in the end of the interview to something called the Brooklyn Cat Cafe, which Rachel Foster also founded and is in, involved with. One of the earliest cat cafes in the United States, the Brooklyn Cat Cafe's mission is to save Brooklyn's cats by offering a hip and inviting destination where cat lovers of all ages can interact with adoptable animals and one another. I love this idea, and I think it would be a great setting for a story, a scene, or a poem. So this week's Write the Book prompt is to write about a mix of humans and cats interacting in such a place, and what happens to them on a random day in a cat cafe. Good luck with your work in the coming week, and tune in next week for another prompt or suggestion. I would love your feedback about the show. Let me know if you'd like me to interview certain authors or if you have events to announce. Be sure to tell your friends about Write the Book and about the podcast site, writethebook.podbean.com, where you can get all the archived episodes. Um, new and recent episodes of Write the Book are available wherever you go to get your podcasts. Uh, just subscribe to have them sent to your podcast app. Um, a reminder to listeners who write, I do share a writing prompt each week, so be sure to listen to the archives of Write the Book if you'd like to find any that you may have missed. You can also access the podcast and link to our social media presence at my own website, shelaughswithoutus.com. Um, if you like the show, please rate it, like it, and talk about it. Up next at 5, stay tuned for Feminist Frenzy the radio show with a feminist agenda. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro, and you've been listening to Write the Book. This is 99.3 FM, WBTVLP, Burlington, Vermont, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. Stay well and have a great week.